0: So go ahead and subscribe to us and follow along. Nobody likes to wait for anything at all. I don't like to wait at red lights, so I don't stop. I don't like to wait in the doctor's office. I don't like to wait on hold with customer service. We don't like to wait. And we so don't like to wait that we have so ordered our lives to be surrounded by every kind of device and technology that is attempting to assuage us from the pain of having to wait. Sometimes it hurries up the wait. Sometimes, if it doesn't hurry up the wait, it gives us something to do while we're waiting. And yet, you know what it does? We've so ordered our lives to minimize the waiting periods in life that our brains have actually learned to operate differently. We now are no longer capable of waiting the way we used to be capable of waiting. Do you know what the average, I'm told, our average attention span is now in our species? Eight seconds. That's two seconds shorter than a goldfish. We don't like to wait for anything. Can I just tell you about one or two of the kinds of things that you and I have to wait for all the time and the length of time for which we are waiting? For example, if you use public transportation, most Americans on average will wait. Did my voice just get deeper in here? Not complaining. I think that sounds kind of cool. I'm your father. On average, we wait 20 minutes for a bus or a train. We wait 32 minutes in our doctor's offices, on average. How does that compare with you? About right? Uh, When we're going through security at airports, we wait in this country, on average, for 32 minutes. Seems a little short to me. We live in Atlanta, though here's one. Waiting for our significant other to get ready to go out to eat. 21 minutes in waiting. Uh, That laugh sounded as if that sounds a little short to you, right? Now if I wanted to cause some trouble I might ask you to point to the one for whom you are waiting most of that time, but I won't do that. Do you know that we wait in the course of our life, annually speaking, every year You will wait, on average, 13 hours on hold with customer service. Can you feel that pain? I heard somebody grunt. 13 hours of your year spent, and the worst are the automated customer services, you know. Hello. I've been programmed to understand complete sentences. How can I help you today? And I'll say, I'd like to speak to an agent. Oh, you'd like to renew your subscription, will you? No, no, no. I'd like to speak to an agent. Oh, you'd like to make a deposit. No! I want to speak to somebody with a pulse. On average, we spend 50 hours, 50 hours annually waiting in traffic. 50 hours. Now, if you're in Atlanta, maybe a little bit more than that, because Atlanta is one hour from Atlanta. (laughs) We spend collectively, as Americans, 37 billion hours annually waiting in some kind of line. And that means that individually, each of you will spend, if you live a long life, two years of your life waiting in some kind of line. And we don't like it. And we get antsy. We get worked up about it. That's why I think we need a little Advent about once a year. Advent from the Latin, Adventus, which means the coming of Jesus. We prepare these weeks leading up to Christmas to prepare our hearts and minds for the coming of Christ, the birth of Jesus. But we also have Advent not just to remember the birth of Christ and His coming then, but to rehearse, to rehearse. The waiting that's necessary for his coming again so at Advent we wait because we say at Advent by what we do waiting 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 that waiting is woven into the very fabric of what it means to have faith we cannot have faith without a little bit of waiting We cannot have faith without knowing somewhere along the way how to wait. What are you waiting for today? Because the truth is, I I promise you, I guarantee you, someone is in this hour with us, either physically in this room, the Family Life Center, or online with us in this hour. And you're waiting for something, and it's not something silly. It's not the traffic light and it's not customer service. You're waiting for the lab results to come back and they never come back fast enough. You're waiting for the one you love to start paying attention to you again. Some of you are here waiting today for a phone call from a son or a daughter and they just are too busy and you wait. Some of you are waiting for someone you love to become sober. Some of you are waiting for a better job, a a bigger bonus, a better opportunity, whatever it is. And the trouble is, the longer we wait for the thing that we're waiting for, the easier it is to lose heart. And to somewhere along the way, in the midst of the wait, whatever it is for you, somewhere along the way... We begin to believe that maybe the wait isn't worth it. That maybe it's all been a big fat waste of time because we don't don't see any change. We don't anticipate any change. And I just want to talk to you for just a few more minutes this morning about why the wait is not a waste. While the wait is not a waste. Now, what I want to do is elevate a portion of Scripture that has wisdom for us. I want us to look at this passage because it may have something to tell us about what we ought to think and how we ought to feel and and what we ought to do in the midst of the wait. And then I want to ask two or three questions that I think maybe I recommend to you as you wait for the thing that you're waiting for. And by the time we're done today, I want to give you... Two or three very practical things that you can do right now in the heart of the thing that you're waiting for in the season of your way. So we're going to be in the gospel or the, the letter to the Romans as Paul is attempting to do something fantastic. He's attempting to wrap words around this incredible mystery of what has happened in the person of Jesus but he's trying to do it in such a way that gives honor and and some some measure of adequacy to the magnitude of what happened on the cross for paul for anyone who would listen to him paul is insisting That this is not just something for a provincial, small group of monotheists who live in Palestine. This is not just for this ethnic group or this religious group. It is for the whole world. According to Paul, the thing that happened on the cross and the thing that happened in the empty tomb of Jesus was so cosmic and so universal in its magnitude that it includes everyone. And attempting to describe that and why we have been longing for that kind of love, that kind of renewal from God the whole time, he, around about chapter 8, he begins to talk about all of creation longing for this kind of renewal. He says, look, you don't have to look very far, just look around you, he says in chapter 8, and you'll see evidences everywhere of a whole created order being crippled by injustice, Oppression, degradation, despair, division. And in the midst of a world like that, there is, Paul says, a kind of groaning for something better. A kind of aching in the bones for something new. That's why he said, think of it this way. The thing that happened in the death of Jesus was that all humankind died with Jesus. That there was an end to all previous ways of being human. When he was buried, so was our old version of humankind. But when he was raised, so also was raised a brand new way to be human. Humankind itself was born in a kind of new creation, he says. And then the dominant image that he uses in chapter 8 is an image of a pregnant woman. If you want to know what the world itself and all the created order, including you, have been longing for for so long, think of a woman in travail in the midst of childbirth. With all of the pain and the tears and the sweat and the blood and the pain that comes with childbirth, Paul is saying that's what not only the world, But if we're honest, each of us individually has been longing for the birth of something new. And we read about it in chapter 8 and I'm going to read to you from Eugene Peterson's translation of chapter 8 verse 22. All around us we observe a pregnant creation. The difficult times of pain throughout the world are simply birth pangs. Can I just stop for a moment and ask you what what would your life look like? What would you think of it? How would you feel about it? What would you do about it? If you could remember every day when you wake that the pain that you're going through in this season of waiting is a birth pang for something that is being born in and around you he goes on, but it's not only around us, it's within us. The Spirit of God is arousing us within. We're also feeling the birth pangs. This, these sterile and barren bodies of ours are yearning for full deliverance. And then the, the, the best line of the passage thus far. That is why waiting does not diminish us any more than waiting diminishes a pregnant mother we are enlarged in the waiting. We, of course, don't see what is enlarging us, but the longer we wait, the larger we become and the more joyful our expectancy. Can I get you to think for just a moment about the wait that you're in and consider it a kind of pregnancy for that which is to come? Sometimes we, we lose heart, we... We give in to despair because we don't see any result of the season we've been waiting for ever and ever and nothing is changing. We can't see anything happening. And yet, like a pregnant mother-to-be, there may be something happening in ways that are beyond your eyes to see. You know that sometimes our eyes will deceive us, right? We will see things that are not there and sometimes not see things that are there. Years ago, I told you this story, I think. It was the first night that I was a youth pastor at a church in Maryland. And they had this big play on stage. They were singing and acting, all the kids, all the youth. And I was supposed to meet them that night. It was, it was the, the new youth pastor is there and I'm going to meet them and meet their parents and it's going to be great. We're going to have desserts. So they have the play and it's, it's great. It was great fun. And afterwards, I'm meeting parents and this one woman comes up to me and introduces herself. She says, my name is Wynne Roos and, and my, my son is John. I, I, oh, John, with the, who played the in the, oh, you must be so proud. Now let me stop right there for a moment. When Wynne Roos came up to me that night and said, hi, my name is Wynne Roos and my son is John, what you need to understand is that she, you need to know what she was wearing. Because she was wearing something fashionable at the time, it's even come back in fashion, I believe, as I look around from time to time. Gentlemen, it's what's called an empire waist. Yeah, uh (laughs) uh-oh. Which means the waist is up here and then everything's just kind of, you know, kind of flowy, kind of flowy from there, right? So I say to Wynn, Wynn, it's great to meet you. Aren't you proud? I know you're so proud. Hey, is John gonna have a little brother or a little sister? To which she says, I'm sorry? And then I point and say, is he gonna have a brother or a sister? (laughs) To which she said, neither. Now, the number one rule about holes, well, is to first realize you're in a hole. (laughs) And then number two, stop digging. When she said neither, I said, oh, you haven't found out the gender of your baby? <laughs> and she said, I do know that I'm not pregnant. And then I straight went to lying up in that church. I said at that point, oh, okay, see, because what had happened was I thought somebody, somebody had told me and it was just a mess. Now, by the end of my several years there, we were the closest of friends and she forgave me, but I tell you that story to tell you sometimes our eyes can deceive us. Sometimes we see something that's not really there. And then in seasons of waiting, I think it's even worse. It's even stronger. It's the opposite. In seasons of waiting, we don't see something that really is there. I love that our species requires 40 weeks for babies to gestate. Because it takes 40 weeks. Each week is important to the baby because the baby then is developing all the different systems that she will need. Skeletal system, muscular system, cardiovascular system. She's learning to develop the synapses that will send her signals to interpret life. And we all understand why we need at least 40 weeks for the baby to be prepared. But what we sometimes forget is that mom and and dad need every one of those 40 weeks too. Because there are systems that need to be developed in the mom and dad up here. And in here, we've got to renegotiate what it means to be together and to share space. This baby's going to change everything. In fact, back when we were still having humans, there was a commercial out. I think it was like a Hallmark commercial, something really kind of hokey and cheesy and soft filter and touchy-feely and wonderful. And the key line is about a baby being born. And the tagline was, having a baby changes everything to which I would always respond because we had just had our second child and life was chaos, it was a mess, we didn't know what we were doing, we were trying to figure it out, so the commercial would come on and say, having a baby changes everything. And I would respond, yeah, but having two really screws your life up. (laughs) Just kidding, Jackson. It takes some time waiting. Because the thing that's being developed in you, both the man and the woman, in the woman gestating this human so that this baby can be born, but in the man's mind, the wife's mind, the mother's mind, the father's heart, there's all this preparation that must take place to make room. I'll never forget, you know, Annie Westbrook is our youth pastor. Pastor Annie is now on maternity leave because uh, she did a good thing. She had a beautiful baby and we celebrate with her and she's she and Brian are getting adjusted to life with a new baby in in her maternity leave. But I remember one day before she had given birth and she was leading in worship and she was talking and, and speaking up here. And and it was before she had given birth. She was, as the word of God says, she was great with child. And I remember sitting on the front pew with you Terry or maybe it was Robin and and she was getting winded because she was trying to speak but the lung capacity was not what it used to be and she actually at one point I leaned over to you and I I said I just want to take a deep breath for her about somewhere around that time she stopped she said let me catch my breath I'm not used to sharing lungs with anybody (laughs) right what a beautiful parable it is to think about what you and I must do during waiting seasons have to learn that something is shifting inside and if I hurry up and move past the wait too soon then I won't be ready and, and, and you won't be ready and, and the world around me won't something has to happen to prepare me and I can't do it without waiting that's why I want to ask three questions that I think maybe you ought to ask yourself whatever you're waiting on waiting in the relationship waiting for the acceptance letter waiting for the new opportunity at work Ask these questions. What are you waiting for? And number two, what's the weight doing to you? And number three, what are you doing about it? Can we just leave those up there for just a moment? Because if you're taking notes, I want you to write these down. What are you waiting for? What's the weight doing to you? And what are you doing about it? Can we just first talk about what are you waiting for? It's amazing to me how so many of us go through life with this kind of generalized, free-floating kind of anxiety about our life, and we never really just name it. We never do the the hard work of identifying, what is it that troubles me so? What is it that I, I can't seem to get past? What is this thing? And during seasons of waiting, we might assume that we're waiting for one thing, but are we? I mean, are you waiting... For him to apologize and ask forgiveness? Or is what you're really waiting for to be a new way of doing this relationship so that the injury doesn't happen again and again and again? What are you waiting for? Are you waiting to get into a particular school or land a particular job? Or is what you are actually waiting for to be some kind of assurance that the next season of your life Will be worth it because if you can answer the question what am I really in a season of waiting for right now then you're prepared to explore the second question what's the weight doing to you is it just frustrating you is it just keeping you angry all the time is it is it just keeping you up at night because you can't stop fearing what's ahead Because sisters and brothers, if we can learn to look at our lives in the midst of the waiting seasons, we might just recognize that there are some things that have to happen during the wait that cannot happen outside the wait. Because it's only during the wait that we are forced to confront broken ego patterns about how we've been doing our lives. And it hasn't been working, but we keep on doing it. But in the wait... forced to get over our pride, we're forced to ask ourselves hard questions about all the things that we assumed were true about our lives and maybe some of them weren't true. Maybe during the wait, the wait is the only way that we come to a place where we learn to be content with what we have instead of always being afraid that somebody else has something that I don't have and maybe you gotta wait long enough to become content and realize you got everything that you need with you. Maybe it's the weight that requires us to get over some fears and maybe it's a weight that stops our compulsion of filling up our lives with stuff, with pleasures, of, of triggering our dopamine signals so that we are always stimulated and never in need of looking internally. Maybe the weight forces us, like in some of my seasons of waiting, To relinquish the illusion of control. And maybe some of you have to have waiting seasons because without a waiting season you never learn to show up for your own life, that you're not frustrated enough, you're not angry enough, unless you wait long enough and then eventually show up and take responsibility for your life. Sometimes we have to wait in order to get over the illusion that our lives can be perfect and flawless. What is the weight doing in you? What is it revealing about the way that you view and do your life that only the weight can reveal? This is why I love what the first chapter of James sounds like in the message version. We read it in chapter 1 here. Consider it a sheer gift, friends, when tests and challenges come at you from all sides. You know that under pressure, your faith life is forced into the open and shows its true colors. So, don't try to get out of anything prematurely. Let it do its work so you become mature and well-developed and not deficient in any way. What is the weight doing to you? It reminds me of a reading from Zorba the the Greek where uh, Nikos Kazantzakis tells about a day he goes in the backyard and finds behind his tree a little butterfly attempting to come out of the cocoon. He writes about it and this is what he says. He says, I remember one morning when I discovered a cocoon in the back of a tree just as the butterfly was making a hole in its case and preparing to come out. I I waited a while, but it was too long in appearing and I was impatient. I bent over it and breathed on it to warm it. I warmed it as quickly as I could and the miracle began to happen right before my eyes. Faster than life, the case opened. The butterfly started slowly crawling out I shall never forget my horror when I saw how its wings were folded back and crumpled the wretched butterfly tried with its whole trembling body to unfold them bending over it I tried to help it with my breath but all in vain it needed to be hatched out patiently and the unfolding of its wings should be a gradual process in the Sun but now it Now it was too late. My breath had forced the butterfly to appear all crumpled before its time. It struggled desperately and a few seconds later died in the palm of my hand. That little body is, I do believe, the greatest weight I have on my conscience. For I realize today that it is a mortal sin to violate the great laws of nature. We should not hurry. We should not be impatient. But we should confidently obey the eternal rhythm. Lord, I don't know who needs to hear this and I don't know why. But somebody here may need to hear a word of grace that it's okay to confidently obey The eternal rhythm to recognize that you are being held in the hands of a God who set the calibration of your heart to beat at a certain rhythm and for a certain number of years. And in the course of those years we can't hurry or slow down a single moment and therein is the freedom. So that leads us to not only ask what is it I'm waiting for and not only what is this weight doing to me but what are you going to do about it you're like well that's a dumb question if I knew what to do about the weight I would already be doing it I would already be doing whatever it takes to get out of the weight to expedite the end of the weight I would already do it what do you mean what are you going to do about it well the passage that we read a moment ago from Romans in chapter 8 it has another part to it it Picks up in verse 26. Listen to these words. So meanwhile, the moment we get tired in the waiting, God's Spirit is right alongside helping us along. If we don't know how or what to pray, it doesn't matter. He does our praying in and for us, making prayer out of our wordless side making prayer out of our wordless sighs and our aching groans. He knows us far better than we know ourselves, knows our pregnant condition, and keeps us present before God. That's why we can be so sure that every detail in our lives of love for God is worked into something good. Beloved, you and I, Have gathered to worship a God whose nature is to be with us in the wait. To be with us in the wait. There could be nothing more powerful than the God who is with us in the wait. We think that the thing more powerful would be to get us out of the wait. If you really want to show off as a God who knows how to do things, get me out of this wait. But he shows up with us in the wait to do something in us that can't happen outside the wait. Even the praying is not all on us. For when we have no words to pray, we're told that the Spirit intercedes with wordless sighs and with anguished groans. So what do you do? There are three things that you can do in the wait. First is this, practice breath prayers. Practice breath prayers. What's a breath prayer? A breath prayer is simply a prayer that you can breathe and pray wherever you are. You can pray it at the red light. You can pray it waiting in line. You can pray it while you're talking to the automated agent on customer service. You can pray it at 2 o'clock at night when you wake up and you can't go back to sleep for two hours. A breath prayer is a prayer that is breathed before God. We're told... That God's personal name as revealed in the book of Exodus is what you and I casually, sometimes cavalierly, re- respond to or re- reply to as Yahweh, Yahweh. If you translate it from Hebrew and, and into English, if you kind of transliterate it, it's four letters, it's Y-H-W-H, the tetragrammaton, the four-character name of God that was not ever meant to be spoken. Now, we call it Yahweh because we throw some vowels in there and pronounce it Yahweh, and your Bibles is treated differently. In the Hebrew Bible, it's actually written Adonai, so as to not disrespect the reverence of the holy name. In fact, some Orthodox groups today will even, when writing the word God, G-O-D, will put G-D so as to not offend and overstep the boundary and speak. The divine name in your Bibles in the Hebrew Bible the Old Testament you may see the word Lord and it's in all caps whenever you see the word Lord in all caps in the Hebrew Bible or in your English Old Testament it's this word they're attempting to treat and the mystery of it is that it was never meant to be spoken it was really meant to be breathed because truly the pronunciation (laughs) how ironic (laughs) the pronunciation of the of the word the pronunciation of the word is meant to have a certain kind of onomatopoeia the first thing that you did as a human being upon your birth was to speak the name of God. The last thing that you will do when you give back to God the breath that you borrowed for a while will be to speak the name of God. And every moment between your first breath and your last breath, even seasons of breathlessness where you are waiting and waiting and waiting, my advice to you on what to do in the wait is breathe. Because in the waiting, you are breathing the name of God who was before you, who will be after you, and who is with you in the midst of the wait. Just breathe and when you have no words to pray breathe a sigh and if you have no energy to sigh groan and if you can't muster the power to groan grunt and God will reckon that groaning as the holiest of prayers as you wait so you not only can Practice breath prayers. The second thing you can do in the midst of waiting is practice micro-waiting. I'm not talking about microwaving. We microwave everything from our food. We attempt to microwave our relationships. We attempt to microwave wisdom and maturity that can only come in time. I'm saying practice micro-waiting because your life, every day of your life, will be punctuated by dozens of uninvited wait times at the traffic light, standing in line, waiting at Chick-fil-A, going in the doctor's office, and in all these moments that you didn't ask for in terms of waiting, I suggest you turn those into spiritual disciplines. To practice being relieved of the stress of having to hurry this thing up, you can't Snap your fingers and change the light. You're going to have to wait anyway. So if you embrace the wait with a micro-waiting discipline, here's what it will do over time. It will broaden the bandwidth of your capacity to handle waiting. The more we become good at waiting for the small things, the more comfortable we are at waiting for the bigger things. And as we wait something changes within us. To practice micro waiting says I will in this moment with customer service not worry about it because that will be my small spiritual demonstration that I'm attempting to relinquish the illusion of control on my life. Yeah. So you can practice breath prayers, you can practice micro waiting. Do you know what the last thing is that I suggest we might practice during our wait? Practice waiting in the waiting. Practice waiting in the waiting. And I'm not, that isn't, that's not as cheeky as that sounds. Here's what I mean. I mean waiting as in waiting on someone else. As in serving someone else. Never underestimate the power of what's possible in your wait when you learn to take the energies of all your anxiety and frustration and anger and pride and and you turn it outward, to someone else in compassion and mercy and service. Jesus, on the last night of his life, was with his friends and he told them, I'm going somewhere and you can't come with me. You must wait. And they were filled with anxiety and dread. He could see it on their faces. What will we do without you? How long will you be? What's coming next? And they would have to wait. And Jesus, seeing this anxiety says nothing, but gets up from the table and takes a towel and he washes their dirty feet. And then he says, in my absence, you should do to one another what I have done to you. You should love one another the way I've loved you. You should serve one another in the way that I have served you. And in so doing, while you wait, you will find my presence among you in ways more mysterious than you could have ever anticipated right in the middle of the wait so that's it that's all i have to suggest today that if we can ask ourselves what am i waiting for then we're getting down to it if we can ask ourselves well, what is this weight doing to me is it only causing me more anger or can i grow the eyes to see something beautiful and life-giving happening during the wait and what am I doing about it? Are you practicing breath prayers? Are you practicing micro waiting? Are you practicing waiting in the waiting? Now, you may be hearing that today and at where you're sitting and where you're viewing, what you're doing as you're considering what I'm hearing. And, and it may be that it feels so foreign some of the topics I'm talking about here to you because maybe for you, the first step is to recognize I have come to a place now where I recognize I have never articulated a desire to even wait on him or to follow him or to seek him or to, or to call him my Lord. I, maybe you've come to the place where you realize I've never done that. And until you claim him as your Lord, until you relinquish the control of your own life and you surrender in yielded adoration to the one who knows you best and loves you most, you may continue to feel a sense of lostness, a sense of panic over when will this wait end, I can't stop it, I can't control it, I can't hurry it up. Maybe today you come to the place where you confess to God that you're tired of trying. And maybe you don't have the words and you need to borrow some words today. Simply borrow these words. God, I am tired. I'm tired of waiting. I'm tired of dreaming up whatever the solution is to get me out of this weight. I'm tired of trying to stay behind this steering wheel and drive without running off the road as I wait and wait and wait into the horizon. And I'm tired today. I'm weary in the wait I've come to the end of anything I can do for me, but I suspect that coming to the end of me means that I've come to the beginning of you. And I ask that you would forgive me. I am ashamed of some things that I have said, done, thought, felt. I'm ashamed of things that I have attempted to rescue myself. But not anymore. Today, I pray that you would forgive me for those things. And if you'll have me, I will follow you wherever you lead as long as it takes.